it's so, I feel so lucky to be back here um, for the third time, and each time it's different. Um, what's so amazing is just the, the range of people, and I haven't had a chance to speak with all of you, but many of you, um, and heard some of you present last night, and what a gift to be in this place at this time with artists and writers who have such such a creative mind. Um, it gives me a lot of hope. I'm going to talk in between poems. Here we go. It's light. Okay, that works. Okay, can you hear me fine? Okay. To make an apparition, cup your palms as if catching water. The wind field shifts what climate has tangled into landscape. A mind, lost as a white doe in winter, carcass of anthrax in the permafrost, a sand's slippage in your hands. A body's hexed ambition and its shame, like all geographies of disaster, are subject to distortions of perspective. At its edge of descent, digression's highway will carry the subject to its horizon. The surfacing image, bent ray of light. After the wind had cycloned and dispersed, we made a raft by lashing lengths of cane, bowl-shaped skin boats with a sapling frame. Engulfed by the river, we did not die but were drawn down farther beneath the waves. Um, I was asked, and this was in 2020 at one point, what story um, I would tell of our nation. And I assumed it meant the United States, because I always assume many of us in one room or another are from different nations and multiple nations. Um, but I was asked, what story will I tell the generations that follow us about our lives and our actions at this present time? And I ask myself that question still today, um, questioning now daily, um, when it seems so much more difficult to muster the focus, spirit, and initiative to write. Um, I question what I'm writing for. Um, and I especially question it when I'm not actually writing, which is daily. <laughs> Which tells me two things, that poetry must be lived. It's not just an idea. It must be read and written for it to live. And poetry can only live in the flux of the question, because that was an unanswerable question. So I sit to write, and I ask myself, what is there to say of this, this time in which we live? to the earth's edge where difference ends. Writing from a lone corner of the nation, I no longer recognize the difference between the name of the wall and the wall itself. I write a sound without dimension, an utterance with no one to listen for the radical aspirated roll to the earth's edge where difference ends. The river has concealed itself in dust. With the devil's rotting apples and our flags, I arrange a mosaic of God's face. Exhausted by the work of finding words which never work, my usual worries, a synchronized gesture 
a closing door. I have no referent for the polar bend, the Orphic garden, radial descent. I know life by the blurred periphery of its passing, as if it were a train or its caboose, its copper face or tail, a ghost now very far from its body. So I grew up having the consciousness of um, many threads of American ancestry, having indigenous um, American ancestry and current membership in the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma, having Dutch ancestry from my father's family from early revolutionary New York, late German immigrants to Massachusetts. I feel I'm a citizen of two nations, of the United States and also the Muscogee Creek Nation. Um, I'm also a daughter of a military diplomat and grew up moving between four countries. So I think about the concept of nationhood a lot and how nation and poetry intersect. Since I grew up in a diplomat family, I was taught to be proud of my Muscogee heritage because of its policy of neutrality, integration, and diplomacy in the American South. I was taught the truth that the Creek Nation was a composite of many people and welcomed in African, Spanish, French, and Welsh to the Muscogee structure, and that the Muscogean people speaking who made up the South before it was the American South were once, and still, just not in the same place, a flourishing society whose ceremonial mounds and associated histories have been mostly covered over by the highways and shopping malls in American history, forgotten with the rest of the continent's pre-colonization life. I realize now how lucky I was to learn about this history as we live in a country that is intent on erasing our origins. Um, not ours, all of ours. Any evidence of our multiple existences, current and prior to the American story of itself. I numbered these, thought I would be clever. Now it's hard to find, okay. Under restless colonial seabirds, we sailed our cargo across the desert, never doubting we could find our way back to lofty pines, wet glades, creeks of painted rocks. We carried our dead on cedar litters until we could carry them no further, then left them by the side of the road, covered in quilts we'd been traded for deer before the last of the herds were killed off. Like deer, we could not fathom our escape, drew closer together from the flames, only to fall from our hunter's bullets. Our encampments in the western country promised us faith and its meager rations. We waited in line for water and grease to follow our shadows by gaslight, ravens in the scorched black sycamore. To learn the medicine for vanishing, we have eaten fish from the hollow tree, our ghost now very far from its body. It travels north and doesn't want to return. Why return when home is warmed for pain and is anxious to understand nothing? I'm gonna talk a little bit about, so this book is made up of one long poem made out of 64 poems called The Maybe Bird. And then an opening poem, there's one in the middle, but the opening poem called The Shadow Poems. So I wanted to show you a little bit about how the shadow poems were constructed. Um, oh, 
so let's see. Here we no, there. Okay. Okay. Um, well, you can see the side stuff. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, okay. So one of the reasons. Um, so my Muskogee um, family from my mother's side is from the south, Muskogee homelands. Um, and when I look for these homelands, I don't see it. You know, the landscape has changed, the surfaces have been paved over, written over, the stories too. And what is known of Creek Country, as one might call it, um, Muskogee area, homeland, before the removal to Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma, is largely inscribed in the very texts that participated in its dissolution. Um, some of these texts are here. Um, so at one point I decided I wanted to look at some of these texts, not to see ourselves, um, because we don't see our memories of place in these texts. Um, it doesn't mean we were not there. Our knowledge is a different kind of visibility, a different kind of insight. It's not what is visible on the maps or in these texts. Um, so I was looking at these texts with that in mind, and I wanted to do a kind of erasure. But they're long texts, and erasures are when you go through and erase things and you only focus on certain words and kind of an art project. But I went through these texts and did all this stuff, and I got really frustrated because I spent way too much time reading such things as um, Benjamin Hawkins. If you have those collected works, it's like this big, and it's terrible. And everything sounds the same. Like the way he talks about any Muscogee or any native person he encountered in the South is exactly the same as everyone else, oddly. Um, but not surprisingly. So what I, so I, I, these are the eight texts that I used. Um, the next slide talks about what I ended up doing, the process. Okay, so I got a little frustrated, so I decided I needed, and I've talked to some of the poets about this, a process to work on this frustration. I couldn't just come up with a poem. You know, I needed some rules to anchor my emotions. So I came up with these rules where I took all the, all the stuff that I lifted from these texts, like random words, random phrases, for whatever reason. A lot of it was very random. And then I typed it into a document, which was a little over 16 pages, but I changed the font so it could be 16 because I wanted a nice even number. And then I cut each page into four, and then four again, and then I rearranged these 256 pieces so I had 16 new pages, and each page um, had one piece from one of the original pages. So I started calling these text quilts. And then from this, I took 16 days, and each day I focused on a page. And my rule for the day was write a poem using only the words on that page. I couldn't even add a pronoun or, you know, anything else. Um, so the poem becomes a shadow of the original text. So here's an example of three of the pages. Um, and some of these poems would, you know, take a lot more than a day. I mean, <laughs> I would go back to them after my 16 days. Um, so I'll read a few of these. This one is not from one of these, by the way, so don't worry if you hear a word that you don't see. I didn't cheat. Okay. Oh, this one. This one, sorry. 
Yes. Number six. And they're not titled. This is just number six of the 16 shadows. Exhausted from the violent order of hours, we took shelter in the country of Kusa, a deserted village with thin deer flint roads. We learned to navigate painted margins, fence the fields, plant stones, make of nothing bread enough. Did not resist the music of the swamp, old dances raising the river's black dress, her perfumed cane, rum-skinned fruit. In the mouth of March, we were swimming in flowers and lived in this manner without men or wars on the left banks of the earth. So as I was writing these 16 pieces from these text maps, various voices came about. And I decided I was just gonna follow them, not knowing who they were, and thinking about all the voices that were not represented by these texts, um, and all the voices that were buried by these texts, and all the stories that were buried by these texts. So I'll read two more. Two. Two. Okay. I am told heaven is already visible in the white woods, but I see nothing. The river was impassable for days. Encamped near a fish-bitten bank, I found a violin. My skull's brass rattle, cracked water moccasin yellowed from the sun. I had rendered my provisions, two rows of teeth, a small knot of fire, sugar, keg, hatchet, grass. To sleep in the pines, let slip my raft, as if from the ribs of a woman whose name I forgot and regretted ever since. The last one I'll read of these. carefully numbered and then changed my mind about. Well, I'll read this one. The war appeared to be coming to an end. The no-name people not yet taken left their crops for summer's drought. A bow in the mouth they passed unseen forded the river for rock trout, crystals, the eastward hillside dense with vines. Eyeing the sunrise, they traveled for days and lost in the reeds, heard everything. Earthworms, thunder, yesterday's moss, the patient banks of morning. Um. So when I am asked what story I will tell of this nation, of this time we are in, I feel a momentary relief in being a poet. Uh, not because poetry isn't a story, but because a poem allows a different kind of story. Uh, like a prism, it can reveal so many frequencies of light and so many voices that we often don't know. And in that unknowing is part of the, la the listening and the acceptance um, 
and the relationality that I think can be teachers for us. So the shadow poems are not just shadows of those historical texts that I mentioned, but they're also shadows of the book's title poem, The Maybe Bird. Um, every structure must account for its shadow, so each poem in the fourth section of The Maybe Bird weaves in a line from each of the 16 shadows. So now I'm going to show you the structure of The Maybe Bird, and then I'll read some poems from there. Close. Okay. So the Maybe Bird is the 64-part poem. Um, in four parts, and each part is 16 poems. So this is how it's made. Um, I'll just read very kind of a basic thing here, even though I don't really need to read it. But so the first Hokolan means one in Muskogee. Um, from the first section, Hokolan, I wrote one poem of 16 lines. In the second poem, I based the second poem on the first line of the first poem. The third line used the second line of the first poem. The fourth line used the third line of the first poem, and so on until the 16th. And then I had my last poem, number 16. And then I went to part two. And part two began with the first line of number 16 and a line from number 15. And then I went to part three and part four, and I keep looping back using a line from each of these poems. So it's a rather difficult to describe, and it's probably hard to see because it's so far away. Um, but the fourth section also brings in one line from each of the 16 shadow poems, because I wanted to bring that in too, so that the whole book became a kind of sphere or echo. Um, and I'll just read another one, and then I'll talk a little more about that. So you might hear repeating lines, and that's intentional. <laughs> And the title is one of the lines that's been repeated. And if you read the titles of, in the table of contents, it's basically the first poem of every section. Where horned serpents glitter toward the sun. Hello, you burnt pine, death's calligram. The war appears to come to no end. I wander the grove of recycled thoughts, descend its spiraled library to seek something louder than the thing that has no sound by itself. Wind in sheets, the making of silk, not silk itself, not a silkworm's bitten mulberry leaves, but its synthesis of fibers, proof of a self that dwells in sound, this poem beside me, Iris in her tomb, silk green, my lover, my sympathetic trapper, flowering mouth of my vernacular, who opens in autumn under stolen light, my horned serpent glittering toward the sun. The horned serpent is a mythical figure in many Muscogee stories, um, and so I've woven some of these stories into the poems um, and woven them into the book's contemporary questions of climate, language, and human nature, culture, relationality. Uh, what is important about the story of the horned serpent to me is that it feels formative um, in my life and learning what it is to be human. My grandparents lived in Oklahoma and I would spend the summers at their farm in between living in these places that my family took us to. Um, we'd go home to Oklahoma and my grandpa had a pond and I used to take steal the rowboat and row around the pond, trying to 
follow fish. You know, you'd see them just barely on the surface and then they disappear. And you'd only notice their glimmering scales. But, you know, I wanted, I wanted to see where they went. Um, but I was terrified of the center of the pond because that's where the tie snake, the horned serpent, who is a t called this tie snake in the story, lives. Um, the tie snake lives in the centers of lakes and ponds and occasionally emerges to show its rainbow-colored bejeweled horns. Um, it's lonely. Uh, people swimming in these lakes are often pulled under into the oblivion of the tie snake's underworld, particularly women. Um, and I think about writing poetry as kind of like that. Uh, not that I'm the tie snake, <laughs> but being afraid of the water and being afraid of the center, but drawn to it. Being afraid of the place that you cannot go. If you go to the center, you will be pulled down. But I was drawn to it. I kept taking that rowboat out. Even when my grandpa got me, he, I was in real trouble because I wasn't supposed to take the rowboat out. So I think about poetry that way, a kind of approach to the center of the lake where one must never go, where one might disappear. To be a bride of my own lamentation. I was changing from within the deep vein into a tree of crimson bark, silvery leaves trembling in the long dismembered language of women, scattered into aspirants, hushed into a breeze. Barely audible northern moonlight booms from its slow axis. I could row my boat anywhere from here to be a bride of my own lamentation. But my beloved is the water's gaze, a sheer trough in the center of the lake that draws me to its bellowing spiral. In the late dark cloisters of the grotto, my ears skirt the eddies whirlpooling walls a, a hewn stone stained with rose-red seed. The heart is the inverse of gravity. I listen for its splash at the bottom of the well. I'm going to pause and show you a little bit of this. I showed you this part of the structure. Um, but one of the reasons for this structure um, really has to do with that invisible center. Um, <coughs> Because I also believe, especially like in poems, but especially in sequence poems, that the center of the poem lives beyond the language and in between the poems. And when you write a poem in sequence, it kind of adds to this uh, prismatic thing where the more lights you reflect, the more you might get somewhat close to the center of light or the light nature of light. Um, but the center points are what I'm looking for, that are oral, like oral and vibrational that live beyond the language. So last picture. Oh. <coughs> so essentially, I wanted to write a book that I could draw a picture of. And so this is a picture of the book. Um, this is a picture of the of the formula. Um, and I did that so I could see if I could visualize the center points, the vibrational points that live beyond the language and also beyond the poems, but are also only there because of all the poems. Each of those little points are only there because every one of those points is there. So that was my little obsession. Okay. So I'm going to read a few more, and then I think 
it's 7.30, so I'll give you some, don't take up too much time. I'm happy to, any questions if you have at the end, of course. Okay. Uh, but feathers of discontent, kingfishers. Our beginning was covered in water, and all the animals spoke the same language. Panther tracked back and forth across the sky's long escarpments, nightfall and rock mouth. Buzzard grew tired and flapped his broad wings. The soil beneath him rippled into hills. Our threads unraveled. Spiders' rains returned. Beneath the surface of the floodwaters, the lost people rubbed their faces with earth, their rutted eyes resistant roads of grain. The only willing survivors, not ghosts, the planet's oldest organisms, but feathers of discontent, kingfishers drifting wind-struck over Earth's ancient vents. Sketched on their city's chipped brass plates are future's blinking archipelago. Wouldn't it be preferable to drown, victims of upper-world explanation? There are no hard syllables in water. Our boat disappeared over the Earth's edge and what we didn't see was paradise. Ashes, it's leftover words in my mouth. The singers have fallen asleep in their cars, small camps smoldering. What they didn't sing, ashes, it's leftover words in my mouth. Where are you going? The sun, the moon. Where did you come from? warrior, star. Yet in my doubts I strain to hear the bubble of salt behind sand snells, the ocean pulling back into its mouth. What detritus, the mind. I wade knee-deep in our stratum's mycelium, laced like splattered aluminum paint, a mat of leaves on the forest floor will receive our fall, we imagined. Before we were forced to leave, we charted the denser galaxies, trophied the antlers of three trillion trees to carry with us as a reminder of the history of the world's end people. There was no miracle, no other home. I looked to the east, the fire roads. Marsh birds are lifting from the methane field dwarf white roses blooming in my suitcase. What I wreck against, this cage I made. I wanted the sentence of a shifting tide, the blue flirt of hatched clouds, a canyon wren obscured by snow, the sound of extinction, cypress cones cracking in the canopy, parakeets nesting in the hollow tree. But I cannot language the tree or point out the surfacing image, its bended light, your blood on my lips, nasturtiums, what blooms as inflorescence in the sleeping mouth. 
In the solar assembly of twigs and birds, the damselflies hind wings, figs quickened bud. I awake into thought as you slip from my shore, and nothing I write can draw you back where daylight casts stark shadows on the page I wreck against this cage I made. And, okay, I'll end with this one. I become the canyon, its dreaming eye. In the last days of my marriage to God, I descended their spiraled library, relentlessly navigating stacks of shell-tempered mortuary offerings, sandstone saws recovered from the caves. I lingered on history's worn stone steps to write these things, to recollect myself. What had I unburied and what had I freed and what is freedom from the human need to catalog and clock our porous loads? I gazed, eyes closed at the moon's cratered walls. Spiders encircled me, spinning their silks as I listened to the tuning suspension of the underground particle colliders vibrating between silence and motion. By midnight, saplings had sprouted from my hand. The clouds dissolved into semicolons and I with them into a new language of branching gestures, airborne spores. From one infinitesimal thread, a pattern. It was my first act of disappearance. I would return before anyone noticed poems to be found in the forest, not the mind. There's a canyon between this version of me and the shadow on the stairs that is mine. I became this canyon, its dreaming eye. So I can end there if people have any questions or thoughts. <laughs> yeah. was so hard. <laughs> I let myself use any word in any order that I could possibly find. Um, especially if I didn't let myself use any articles even that weren't there. Um, yeah, it was maddening. <laughs> Good question. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Words. 
Yeah, individual words. And sometimes, I don't know if you can see this, but I mean, a lot of the words were illegible. Oh, it's the PowerPoint. Um, shadow. That's it. Well, so here's one, for example. And I didn't cut very well, so some of them were larger than others because um, the pages were a little silly. Um, and so some of the words were put together, the word itself was cut. So I would kind of imagine a word that that was, that would have been. Um, so I guess that's where I did a little slight addition, is if it was cut off, I was like, well, that could be this word. Um, but in terms of the phrases, what I meant is when I was going through these texts, because they were so large, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do an erasure about any of these things. This is so big. It was more like out of the frustration of looking at these and realizing I didn't know what I was looking for. And I've been doing all this documentary work, and I thought, what is the point of this documentary work? It's just, you know, giving more time to these voices. We don't, they don't need any more time. They've had their time. Um, and so it was kind of out of that frustration. And so I had started to kind of underline things, and I really just tried to randomize it, like open a page and like underline something and, and flip and underline something, because I knew I didn't want too much. Um, and so some, you know, so then I would type those up, which were usually phrases, because I would underline a line or a statement. And so I did have a lot of phrases pulled directly from the book, but then by the time I cut them all up, they didn't make any sense. Um, and oddly, if you look closely at all of them, which you can't really right now, but, and I decided not to include these in the book, because I'm like, there's, al there's a point where it's almost too much process, and I want the poems to just be themselves. Um, but I get to, in moments like this, with other artists, talk about the process because it's interesting. Um, but a lot of, there were so many repeating words. It got really boring. Um, I mean, not this part, but I just couldn't believe how many times you'd have a very, like, savage, you know, like, it was amazing. Um, but there were, you know, enough interesting things that you could kind of, but it really took a lot of meditation to just stare and stare and stare at these pieces and try to not, see something that made sense, but hear a voice. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. Did you already, I love the title. Did you mention, did you talk about it? Oh, no, I haven't. I can talk about that. Um, thank you. So, Someone asked me that recently, and I was like, they're like, who is the maybe bird? I don't know who the maybe bird is. Um, there's a line in the book, um, oh, maybe bird, what will you name me now, disappearing as I am from the body. And that line came up in the writing of this, and I thought, who is the maybe bird? And then, so the first two books that I wrote, um, that leaving Tulsa and then Bright Raft in the Afterweather, each one ended up emerging from an experience I had with um, a figure, an apparition, or a woman. Um, the first book was really driven by that, and I named her Magdalena. I don't know what her name is, but because she was associated with this kind of religious iconography when I first met her, 
Um, I was driving from Santa Fe where I was living at the time to visit my grandpa in Jinx, Oklahoma, because I was visiting him like once a month. And it was a good 10 hour drive. And I was going out there a lot because he was living alone and trying to give my cousin some reprieve. And I, I loved him, I loved going to see him. And I'd stop in the middle of the night at, I don't know if you've been to Groom, Texas. Mm. You are in streets. If you're ever going from the Texas Panhandle, you won't miss it because there's signs for miles. There's either a sign for get to Amarillo and have the biggest steak you've ever eaten and win $1,000 if you can eat an even bigger steak. Or, um, or they have a sign for um, the world's eighth wonder of the universe, the biggest cross in the whole universe. And it's big. So Groom is a little town that's basically a few houses and a gas station and a, and a truck stop. And the truck stop is a whole like park where you walk around the Stations of the Cross. And then there's a gigantic cross that you can see from, you know, 50 miles or more, because you're in the plains, it's Texas Plains, so you can see it from really far. And there are times when the whole, sh the town of the whole, the shadow of the whole town, which is really a gas station, is in the shadow of the cross. It's a very poetic place. But so one night I rest, I stopped there because I was really tired and I thought, well, it's a truck stop, it's fine. My grandpa was a truck driver and I, you know, I'm like, this will be fine. Um, plus it's, you know, the shadow of the cross. <laughs> Nothing bad can happen. Nothing bad did happen. I actually did stop there quite a lot because it, it felt strangely comforting to me, that place. So one night I stopped and I was walking around um, and I was really struck by the Mary Magdalene figure um, so I mentioned this military daughter we moved around a lot and living in Europe we went to a lot of museums and I saw so many images of that Mary Magdalene figure and it always really struck me I always felt really connected to her and so I had some weird experience that night with her and then this woman I met anyway and then later I'm driving to Tulsa and I see this woman um, in a blue dress by a gas station filling up her car so that became that she started that book so to me I felt like I started writing poems at that point for the book um, and so I wrote all those poems for her I didn't think I would continue to do that the second book but lo and behold I start writing I moved to San Francisco and I start writing um, and I meet this woman on the beach um, and she in the second book is named Hokdalwa which is a Muscogee word for um, an elderly woman who's in like a grandmother position. Um, and she features in two of a few of the poems in the book. Um, and so that book is dedicated to her. Um, so I did not think I would need to do this again to find, I guess, a muse or something, or it wasn't really, they weren't really muses, they were really guides um, for the third book. But somewhere in the middle of this third book, this maybe bird showed up in a line and then I became really infatuated with the maybe bird. But the, di the difference here is I still don't know what the maybe bird looks like. <coughs> I've never seen it. And maybe that's part of it. It's the invisibility. Um, which is what the book is obsessed with, really, is the invisibility. Thank you. <laughs>